Just before I start, I'd just like to mention that Pastor Julian asked me this morning if I was going to be right with the names in the Bible that I'll be reading this morning. Quite frankly, I've got Buckley's, but we'll see how we'll go. And I've told Pastor Julian it's okay to correct my pronunciations later. So, Genesis 4, starting at verse 1. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, With the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not, if you do, not do what is right, sin is crouching at your, deser- at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad and Irad was the father of Majuliel and Majuliel was the father of Methusiel and Methusiel was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adair and the other Zelah. Adair gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who played the harp and flute. Zyla also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Lamar. Lamech said to his wives, Listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. Adam lay with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and called him Enosh. At that time men began to call on the name of the Lord. Thanks, Steve. Uh, We were always told, just fake it and if you do it confidently enough, everyone thinks it's right. (laughs) It's, it's worked so far. So. Uh, let me pray and then we'll get into this passage. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we uh, ask now for your guidance as we look through this story, uh, a story that you have chosen to keep for us, to teach us of yourself, to teach us of ourselves and to teach us of the hope that is found in you alone. May you help us to be attentive, may your spirit work amongst us, that these words would not just be words on paper, but that they would be living and active amongst us, challenging us, uh, transforming us and drawing us closer to yourself. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had a strong desire to live on Mars. Um, Maybe you have. Maybe you have. Uh, it, it, it would certainly be a great way to be part of history, wouldn't it? To be part of, you know, the first group of people to ever colonise another planet. That, that's pretty remarkable. That would be pretty cool. Unfortunately, you've missed your opportunity, uh, well, at least the first opportunity that would present itself because applications for the Mars One program uh, have closed. You could have applied. It was open to anyone. There was no prior qualifications required. Uh, you could have had a one-way trip to Mars. You could have been famous because the Mars One program is not just colonising Mars, it's a reality TV show, of course. You could have been famous. 200,000 people applied and some. 200,000. It's now a short list. Uh, it's down to 100. Uh, but what an opportunity. You get to be part of history. You, know, you get to, to, to make history, assuming you get there and survive. You get to escape this world. You get to be part of this cutting-edge scientific community. You're going to be part of this group of carefully curated and selected people. You, know, you get to leave all the troubles of the world far behind and you know, forge humanity on down the path that was destined to take. How idyllic. <laughs> How wonderful. Or is it? Uh, let's, let's assume you survive the trip, which is quite an achievement in itself. Let's uh, assume you, you even are able to survive on Mars, let alone flourish. What will you find there besides rocks and more rocks? What you're ultimately going to find is it's actually not that easy to escape the troubles of this world. <laughs> it's not so simple as just leaving the planet. Because the problem is we bring them with us. See, even on Mars, even in this carefully selected group of people, you know, selected for their, their emotional stability, their, their, their nous, their intelligence, even there, what you will find is hurt <laughs> and pain and conflict and disagreement and potentially even violence. And that's because ultimately the problem that we have is not a problem confined to this world, <laughs> it's a problem confined to our hearts. And we bring them with us. And that's what Genesis 4 is telling us today. It's telling us that we're the problem, actually. <laughs> the issue is here, it's with us. Therefore, we can't escape that problem. We, we can't separate our good from our bad in a way that we could potentially escape it in some magical way. And so what do we do? Well, our passage says we look up. Not to Mars... <laughs> We look a lot further, uh, a lot higher, and there we get a glimmer of hope. But you're going to have to wait till the end to see that. When we get to Genesis 4, it actually looks like it starts pretty well, doesn't it? If you just look at the opening to this chapter, 
it looks pretty good, especially when we compare it to what's gone before. You know, Genesis 3 has ended with sin entering the world, with curse, with hurt, with conflict, with exile and ultimately with death. It's ended very darkly. And yet Genesis 4 starts with life. Look at verses 1 to 4. Adam lay with his wife Eve and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought some fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. It feels pretty good so far, doesn't it? Uh, You can feel Eve's excitement at the birth of her first son. Life is here. Sure, it was painful, an ordeal, but she has a son. Humanity is going to continue. It is not only going to be death from now, here is life as well. Here is that hope, in fact, that was promised in Genesis 3, this, this heir, this snake crusher. There's life. There's hope. And not just one son, but two sons. How blessed is she, this mother of humanity? And what's more, things seem to be going well for her family. They, they work the earth, they find success there in fruits and vegetables, in, in flocks. They seem to, in, in fact, even enjoy a Godward life. Uh, offerings and, and sacrifices seem to be a norm for them, something quite, quite run-of-the-mill. But then we get a sour note. Look at the second half of verse 4. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. See, God looks now on Abel and his offering with favour. But on Cain and his offering, there is no favour. And what's quite astonishing here is Cain's not surprised by that, is he? It's not like Cain's going to God and saying, why, what have I done wrong? No, Cain seems to know and that's why he reacts straight away. He's angry. He's angry that God wouldn't accept him. Was the issue in what he brought? You know, fruits versus uh, first blood, uh, firstborn animals? Well, the answer is yes and no. Uh, to, to offer fruit and vegetables was not a bad thing. Uh, in fact, later in the law, it actually became a uh, required uh, sacrifice of Israel to bring the, the, their fruit, their vegetable, towards God. See, the issue here is not what he brought. The issue is how he brought it. There's a heart issue here. And we see that in God's challenge of him. See, God challenges Cain to do what is right. He doesn't say to him, your sacrifice wasn't good enough, go and bring a different one. He says, no, go from here, do what is right. Live differently. Don't just bring a different sacrifice. See, the sacrifice that Cain brought was simply a symptom of his heart. His heart wasn't right, it was not Godward, it was not God-centred. And the sacrifice he brought was evidence of that fact. And he was not accepted, not because his sacrifice was insufficient, but because his heart was. And so Cain is at risk here. (laughs) There is danger lurking just round the corner. God warns him of it. Sin is waiting for you there. It wants to have you. 
Now you would think that warning's enough. <laughs> you would think God himself saying, be careful of that path, would be enough to turn someone away from it. <laughs> and you'd be wrong. Look at verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. There seems to be very little fight in Cain's life, does there? From verse 7, the warning moves straight to verse 8. Cain gives in. He doesn't master sin as God told him to. In fact, sin masters him. And in that moment, we see just how bad his heart really is. He plots, taking his brother to an isolated place. He kills him quite clearly in cold blood. Uh, he denies knowledge to God. He even he seems to mock God. Cain is cursed then by God. You know, the first man to be cursed. Previously, the land was cursed, the snake was cursed, but now Cain himself is under a curse. He complains about his punishment. He, he even has the gall to question God, say, What you've done is not right. And we see him fear. See, the clear point that Genesis 4 is trying to show us here is that sin has infiltrated deep into Cain's heart. You know, Genesis 3, Adam and Eve had to be tempted into sin, had to be persuaded into sin, but here Cain cannot even be persuaded out of sin. It is that far ingrained in him. He is born into sin. It is part of his second nature. In some ways, it's a bit like kids today being born into a technological society. Uh, my generation, we, you know, gen technology has kind of grown with us. We've learnt it. We've adapted to it. But the next generation, our kids, they are simply born into it. It's, it's second nature to them. I got a really clear picture of this the other day, um, playing the shopping game with a mirror. <coughs> you fill up your, your, uh, your, your trolley, um, and you go to pay, you go to the cashier to pay, and what do you do? Well, you, you give money across, and you get money back from the cashier and change, and that's it. But what does Amira do? Well, Amira pulls out her wallet, and she points it at the cashier and says, beep, <laughs> and then takes it back. The first time, I thought, oh, that's weird. But she's, she's paying by card, of course. She's a, she's a child of the next generation. Now, the funny thing is, I can't remember the last time I paid for groceries with cash, right? It hasn't happened in years. I always use my card. I always beep. But even when I play, I still use money. <laughs> but for Amira, technology is just normal. It's second nature. You don't even, what's money? You don't think about that. In fact, I gave her a 50 cent piece one time to, to, to properly pay and she held that across and beeped it. <laughs> like, what is it with this kid? Technology is part of her. It's, it's just second nature to use it. And so it is for sin. Cain is born into it. You know, we've only gone one generation into humanity and already sin is second nature. It is natural. It is just part of him. 
And the text's point is this. Cain is a picture of people. Cain is a picture of mankind. Sin is not a learned habit. It's not as if we spend the first two or three years of our life learning how to sin. We are born into it. It has infiltrated deep into our hearts and we are thoroughly twisted by sin. It is second nature to us. And like Cain, we are far from God and getting further. I mean, we exhibit all the same traits, don't we? We too deny our wrongs. We, we protest our punishments. We are unable to resist sin's temptations when they come. That is the world we live in. That is the people that we are. As unlikable as Cain is to us, so all of humanity is to God. People are not basically good, who just you know, somehow make mistakes every now and again. No, mankind is very far from God. We're defiant towards God. We're unable to resist sin, even let alone go back to God or change our hearts. Our hearts are twisted. We cannot make them right. And yet remarkably, despite that very grim picture... Our world is not yet complete chaos, is it? It doesn't look real good, but it's not as bad as it could be. Still good happens all around us. And yet even that is not from us. It actually finds its source in God. That's what we're shown in verse 15 and 16. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. See, God is immensely merciful to Cain here. Cain has shed blood. He, by rights, should have his own blood shed and yet he's merciful. He puts his protection on him. Uh, What the mark is is entirely irrelevant. It doesn't matter. But it's very obvious to all around what it meant. It meant don't touch this man. See, what God is doing here is limiting mankind. He is restraining evil from being as bad as it could be. See, the world is not as far gone as it might be, not because people are so good, but because God is so good. Because God is keeping things from being as bad as they could have been. Now, we might hope that Cain, having been punished so severely, might learn from that, that he might take it to heart and live differently. But of course he doesn't. The story follows him, it follows his family because what happens here is really important for us to see. Look at verse 17. Cain lay with his wife and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. So even in exile, Cain's line uh, continues. We, we even get the, the feeling that he's resisting his punishment here. He, he had been sentenced to restless wandering, but immediately Cain's settling down and he's building a city. He's, he's building somewhere to live. And he has a family. Verse 18. To Enoch was born Irad. To Irad was the father of Mehajal. And Mehajal was the father of Methushal. And Methushal was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women, one named Adar and the other Zillah. Adar gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. 
He was the father of all who play the harp and flute. Zillah also had a son, Tubal-Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal-Cain's sister was Nama. Uh, who was Cain's wife? Well, we don't know. <laughs> let's, just, let's just leave it there. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us because it's not actually that important. Uh, maybe the text is trying to say we don't approve of interfamily relationships. Maybe it just doesn't want us to focus there. Because actually the focus is on Cain's family, isn't it? It's on his children and what happens to them. Because his offspring, they're quite a remarkable bunch, aren't they? Look at, look at his great-grandsons. Jabal, the, the, the pioneer of agriculture. Jubal, the father of music and the arts. Tubal Cain, you know, the, the, the ultimate blacksmith, the one who forges bronze and iron. This is quite a family. <laughs> you know, these, these kids are high achievers. And it feels like great hope, doesn't it? You know, humanity is advancing. Humanity is, is, is growing. There's technological advances. Civilization is coming to be. It even feels a bit like Genesis 1 and 2, you know, fill the earth, subdue it. It feels like that's coming true. This feels good, doesn't it? Until you get to verse 23. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilhah, listen to me. Wives of Lamech, hear my words. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for avenging me, uh, injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech seventy-seven times. So despite humanity's advances in technology, there's no advances in righteousness there, is there? In fact, humanity's getting worse. Lamech is perhaps one of the most despicable characters in all of scripture, isn't he? We see him committing polygamy. He takes two wives in direct opposition to God's command only two chapters before, for one man and one woman. We get the feeling he might not have been the greatest husband in the world, looking at the way he boasts. We can see he's proud of his ancestor and his deeds. He even names his son after his ancestor, Cain, Tubal-Cain, commemorating his deeds. He's boastful of his violence. He sings this, this song of the sword, celebrating his vindictiveness. This guy is bad news. See, sin is growing no less, isn't it? It's not that things are gradually, you know, Cain was the low point and things are getting better. No, sin is getting worse. And it is inextricably tied up with humanity. So that even our best achievements, even these incredible advances, even they are tainted and twisted by that sin and helpless to make any improvement to us. I don't know if you've ever been to Rotorua in New Zealand. I know some of you have, clearly. <laughs> uh, if you've been there, you'll probably agree. It's a pretty town. Uh, beautiful lake, mountains all around, you know, lush bush, lots of things to do, fishing and tramping and, and all sorts of good things. It's a nice place. Besides one small issue... <laughs> Uh, Rotorua is built in an area of high geothermal activity. Uh, in English, that means it stinks. <laughs> it smells like rotten eggs and farts. It's really bad. <laughs> and it's everywhere you go. It doesn't matter where you go in the town. It doesn't matter how beautiful it is, how new a building you are in. That stench follows you. It, it pervades everywhere so that everything you're doing, you, you're surrounded by this miasma, this awful smell. And so too humanity. The stench, the corruption, it follows us 
It's everywhere. It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't matter how far we advance. That, that, that taint, that twist is, is on everything. Even the very best things we do are touched by sin and affected by them. All we do, all we produce and develop, it is not only unable to reverse sin, not only unable to bring us closer to God, but unable to improve our heart or change our ultimate destination. Everything that we've done doesn't work as good as it could. It's all twisted and ineffective. See, what this passage is telling us is that humanity and the works of our hands, they are not our hope. (laughs) They are not our hope. There are lots of good things, helpful things, important things that we can use and should use and celebrate as the gifts of God they are, using them to his ends, but never hoping in them to change us or make us new because they are not the answer to our problems. They will not fix us because they can't. It doesn't matter what new medicines are brought out, what new treatments are developed. It doesn't matter how good education gets or how wonderful our schools become. It does not matter how great our technology advances too. All of those things will bless humanity. They will deal with our symptoms, but they will not cure us. They won't fix us. They won't change our hearts. They won't restore us to God. They are not our hope. And if you trust in them, you'll be disappointed every time. And there the story of Cain and his descendants ends. It's depravity and disappointment and a dead end. But it's not the end. Verse 25 and 26. Adam lay with his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. Seth also had a son and he named him Enosh. At that time men began to call on the name of the Lord. Here is is hope. Clearly Eve knew where that hope was. I mean, remember her family situation now. She's got one son dead, one son exiled and now she has a third son, Seth, the line of promise. And we see the promise playing out in this line because what happens at the very end? Well, at that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. See, amongst the mess of failed humanity, here is the hopeful note. Not in technological advance, not in progression of humanity, not in just ploughing on until one day we may get better, but here going back, going up, returning to God. That is the hope of humanity. Uh, To call on the name of the Lord means to worship him. It means to acknowledge him for who he is and all his power and awe and and, and might and glory. It means to reverence him and, and live for him. It means going back to him going back to the one whom humanity had wronged and rejected, knowing that he is the only way out of the mess we've found ourselves in. Hope is not going forward, it is going back. And that hope requires of us great humility because it's hard to go to the one we've wronged, even when warned. It's hard to admit our fault. And it's hard to accept, uh, to ask for help. 
Uh, when I was 17, I was driving my parents' car. Uh, they owned a Commodore. It was a nice car. Uh, a wagon. It had a body kit and mags. It was cool. And I felt cool driving it. And so they warned me. <laughs> Don't do anything stupid. <laughs> In fact, they warned me frequently. Don't show off. Don't drive silly. And of course, you say, yes, yes, of course, Mum and Dad, I'm responsible. You can trust me. Well, of course, I did something stupid. <laughs> I decided to show off. Uh, I decided to drift around a roundabout in the wet and I spun out. And I jumped the curb and I flattened a sign uh, and destroyed the front bumper of the car. Uh, it was not a proud moment. I was so uh, shaken, I was so ashamed by what I'd done that I, I, I don't even remember where I was going. I didn't go there. I drove straight home. And I drove the car nose first into the garage as far as it would go uh, so that no one could see what I'd done. So I could buy myself some time. Uh, but of course, that doesn't work very well, does it? Because someone's going to drive the car eventually. Someone's going to see. I can't just pretend. And so eventually I had to gather my courage and go and face my dad. I had to front up and say, I've done what you told me not to do. <laughs> I've stuffed up. I made a mistake and I need your help. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fix this and I can't afford to fix this. <laughs> I need you. Uh, that was a hard conversation. <laughs> not because my dad's such an awful man, but just because that's a hard conversation. It's scary. It is a tough thing to go to a person whom you've wronged and say, I have made a mistake. I have done something against you, even though you've warned me. And I need your forgiveness. I need your help. Admitting that fault, admitting that need is tough. You know, we're, we're opening ourselves not only to shame, but to potential consequence, to punishment. And that's what we need to do to God. But there is hope here. Uh, we've seen God's compassion already in this story to the worst of sinners. And we see it here even more clearly. Uh, in a remarkable chapter, the book of Hebrews records a time where the whole nation of Israel had to come before God. He, he, uh, they had called on him and he came. <laughs> he came to this mountain and the mountain was crowned with fire. There was a storm, there was darkness and gloom. Uh, there was a trumpet voice, uh, sound that, that shattered the air, a voice that terrified them, the threat of death. You know, God came to them in all of his terrifying and holy majesty and awe and they were packing it. <laughs> they were terrified, rightly. But that chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews 12, goes on to say, that's not where you've gone. That's not where we've come to. It says this, You have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, that terror that Israel felt, that sheer fear of coming before God in all his awe and power and majesty is not for us. Because we who believe are not under that accusatory blood that speaks the word of condemnation. We are under Jesus' blood, sprinkled for us, that speaks the better word of grace and love 
and peace. Now we should have seen that terror. That's what we deserved. That's where we should have come. We were God's enemies. We were of the line of Cain. We were as bad as he has, worse perhaps. We were guilty by our sin, even of the death of Jesus, uh, God's own beloved son. And yet that's not where we've come. Because we have hope. Grace offered, blood received, that doesn't condemn us, but that washes us, that forgives us, that speaks grace to us and that confirms in us that all our sin is taken away. And now not only do we call to God, we can run to him. Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near, let us go to God, run to him with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, we can come before him with confidence. But not only do we have new life, new confidence, new hope and future in God, but we are new people too. God promised to his people in Ezekiel 36 that he was going to do something wonderful for them one day. He said this, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And now that is fulfilled in Jesus. See, we are not like Cain. In Jesus, that that twisted heart, born into, infiltrated by sin, is gone. It's taken away. And we're given a new heart. Not a heart of death, but of life. Not of stone, but living and vital and growing. In Jesus, we are changed forever. Our status is instantly changed. We are forever accepted by God. And our life is gradually changed by this new heart that he gives us that grows and lives within us. And that life is powerful. It is stronger than that heart of stone. It is stronger than death. I once saw a a new driveway laid, a bitumen driveway, strong and smooth and and well done, well finished. We came back after a month and there were cracks all through it. And when you look at these cracks, there were things growing. Not not huge oak trees, but small fungi (laughs) growing up through this strong bitumen and gradually over time breaking it apart, overcoming it and destroying it. And so too in our hearts, because now, because of Jesus, life courses within us. And it breaks that old, dead, sinful self. It breaks who we used to be, because life overcomes unlife. It wins in the end, so that what was dead will be swallowed up by life, by new life. In Jesus, we are no longer of Cain. Our twisted, dead hearts are replaced by living hearts, so that we can resist We don't have to be forever giving in as Cain did. We can say no to sin. We can fight against it and win. It's hard, but not only does God's word lead us and teach us and guide us as it did for Cain, but now his spirit lives within us. Life is in your heart to change you and to make you new. You can say no to sin. It will crouch at your door when when temptation sinks in, You can deny it. You can say no. It's not easy, but it is possible. 
You can pray for strength. You can flee that temptation. You can resist. You can fight. It can be beaten. Don't despair when you lose. You will lose because we are weak. We're still fallible. But know that when you do, you will never be condemned. Because the sprinkled blood of Jesus has made you clean forever. And it speaks a better word to you every day of grace and life and forgiveness. You are forgiven in him. So strive to live for him. Because his life in you makes it possible. That life grows within you slowly but surely. But inevitably, you have hope. On the face of it, Genesis 4 looks pretty depressing, doesn't it? It is death, it is disappointment, it is dead ends. But it is reversed in Jesus. In the better life-giving blood that was shed to make things right and to bring us close to him again for all those who trust in him. He saves us from the curse, he gives us life, he restores our hearts and makes us new. And by him we are close to God. That pain of exile that Cain felt, we won't. Because we will not be sent away. Cain was close to God, but then sent, exiled. We were exiled, but now in Jesus are brought near. Never to be sent away again, but close to God and closer to him for all time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are our firm and good hope. Father, there is no hope in ourselves. We are lost and twisted by sin. There's no hope in the works of our hands or our achievements for all of them are tainted by sin and powerless to cure us. But Father, incredibly, you are our hope. Even though we have wronged you and rejected you, you are gracious and merciful. Thank you that you have come close to us in Jesus, that you have shown us grace in his blood, that it speaks to us a word not of accusation but a good word of grace and forgiveness forever. Thank you that in him we are washed, we are made new. Father, help us to live this new life. Help us to resist sin and say no to it and instead by coming close to you and serving you and worshipping you and glorifying you in all we do to delight in you and in what you've done for us in him. Help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.